This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Hopefully, Paul. Paul, are you there? I'm here. Oh, I'm here. oh good, good, good. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to give you a little uh, jump start this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do you, this on my own. I wouldn't uh, want yeah. to. <laughs> I think you could do it, but it's a lot more fun with two. That's for sure. I don't think anyone would listen either, so... <laughs> Well, it's nice to be back. Um, we're actually recording this a week earlier than we usually will, so it'll be a couple of weeks before this goes out. But by the time it does, happy fall, Paul and everybody else. It's it's fall, finally. It's that time of year that we get to sit back and and read a little bit uh, in, in you know with blankets and, and cooler mm. weather. It's Paul's birthday coming up. Uh, so that's always a fun, you know, reading time of year, I think, for you. See what for books sure. you're going to get and, and what ones will memorialize fall 2023. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I've mentioned it several times, but uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell will forever be cemented with this time of year for me because I got it as a <laughs> birthday. I mean, it was probably like at this point, 15 plus years ago, <laughs> whenever it came out, you know, and yeah, you're right. That's funny how that works. But yeah, Close I'm really 20 ex- years ago, I'm sorry to say. Closer to 20 <laughs> is exactly right. Oh, it keeps creeping up on you. But yeah, no, it's wonderful. I was we've still been pretty hot here. Um, but yeah. I was looking at the forecast for next week and there was a couple days where like a high of 63 and I was like, "Oh, it's actually finally happening." So, <laughs> I'm sure that it'll sneak back in a few more, you know, high 80s or 90s after that because it seems like it always tricks you a little bit, but just mm-hmm. the fact that we're starting to get there is pretty exciting. Well, and that's fun. Last year, listeners, we did do kind of a fall reading episode themed Mm -hmm. um, episode. And so that's something that maybe I'll go back and listen to just to get into the fall mood a little bit more and, and reminisce. But, uh, you know, I, I, this time of year, there's just so many books are coming out that we kind of talked about on our, our fall or, you know, latter half of 2023 preview episode, Mm -hmm. but boy, there's, there's so much. And it's just so, so pleasant. So hopefully you're getting some nice walks in and, uh, you know, the leaves are starting to change. Maybe not quite yet for you and me since it's earlier in September when we're recording this, but it's getting there. Yep, it is. It's close. I bet you if we drove up in the mountains already, there's probably quite Mm -hmm. a bit of change starting to happen and especially in the next couple of weeks. So yeah, good stuff. All right. Well, we are going to be talking about our favorite book passages today. We'll go into that in a moment. But first, Paul, what have you been reading? Yeah, I have, you know, talked a little bit a few episodes ago about how much I've enjoyed the reading of um, the reading work that I've been doing as a judge for the Republic of Consciousness Prize so far. And I will say that it's made my walks down to the mailbox that we've talked about before pretty, pretty fun because, boy, the books just keep flowing. Um, you know, as you know, from being a, a judge and a prize a few years back, it's, you know, the mailbox yeah. is, yep. is full pretty much most days, <laughs> um, which is fun. But most recently, I've been reading a collection um, that is by an author named Ada Zhang. And the collection of short stories is called The Sorrow of Others. And it's published by A Public Space. And so this is a short story collection about, quote, people confronted with being outsiders as immigrants, revolutionaries, and even within their own families. Um, So this might be a comparison that's a little easy, but I still see it there. I I definitely see some parallels to Jhumpa Lahiri in the details of the immigrant experience that she talks about. 
Although these characters typically have a connection to China rather than India, but there's a lot of the similar themes that I've been noticing. And like Interpreter of Maladies, this is a debut collection that just doesn't feel like that. It's amazingly impressive for how, you know, for any book, but especially like I couldn't believe, you know, when Jubilee came out with Interpreter of Maladies, like that's her first shot at things. And this is feeling that same way. I've been really impressed with the range and the depth of her characters and the story she's telling and her ability to kind of jump through generations and represent, you know, different ages really well. Um, You know, just for example, one story is narrated by a college student who moves off campus to go live with an elderly elderly woman from China. And it kind of deals with their, their bond, but also their miscommunications across the ages and across their experience gaps. Um, Another one is narrated by this widower whose daughter has helped arrange a marriage for him so that he'll have, companionship as he grows older. Um, so, you know, it, it's really good on that type of stuff. And so one of the the recent stories that I've read that really blew me away, and honestly, parts of it could probably have appeared in our discussion later today, is a story about a um, girl who's, it's actually a woman, she's looking back on a memory of her father visiting her at her elementary school. He just drops in unexpectedly to visit her for lunch. And so I'll just read real quickly um, a couple of passages to give people a taste. And this is going to be jumping around a little bit, but the name of the story is One Day. And it says, on a random weekday in November, when I was a child and not yet weary of his kindness, my father drove 40 minutes from his workplace to have lunch with me in the school cafeteria. And then it jumps ahead. In the cafeteria, I scanned the mayhem of all those bodies in one fluorescent gray room until I caught Miss Evans, her stubby fingers spread wide and waving at me as though her explosion of hair or outfit wouldn't have given her away. I didn't have friends. Miss Evans was always making efforts to include me, fold me in with the other kids, but I took my cues from adults, the other teachers, and I maintained a separation between me and her. The cafeteria smelled as it always did, of something fried and something sour. My classmates, with packed lunches, were already seated with their sandwiches, their baggies of grapes and baby carrots. Everyone else was in line, where I would have been too, sliding a tray of pizza with a side of mashed potatoes, if on that day my father had not come and surprised me. And then she goes into some descriptions of her father bringing these Tupperware containers full of some of their more traditional foods and asking for a microwave to heat it up. And she's both kind of proud, but also maybe a little bit embarrassed by this whole thing. And then they're eating there with their chopsticks and everything. And so there's just one more quick passage I'll read. It says, this is again, skipping ahead. It says, I wonder if he suspected then that I was beginning to detect weakness and to feel repulsed by it. Helen is such a sweet girl, my father was always telling everyone. Over the years, it became clear to me that he'd interpreted my reclusiveness for loneliness, my brooding for sophistication, when actually I was, as a child, always sick of the world and hardening myself to it, so it could never do to me what it had done to Miss Evans, what it had done to my father who raised me on his own. I thought he was too good for the feckless types on whom his charms were most effective, until eventually I viewed him as one of them, someone who did not know how to make life easier." And so, you know, it goes on just jumping back and forth. It's not a very long story, but as you can hopefully get from those passages, she does a seamless job of narrating it from the future with a little bit of the bitterness and the life experiences that have cropped up, but then jumping back into the innocence of that day and some of the feelings of her as a child. So, you know, I don't know. I, I've been very, very impressed by this collection so far. I think it's it's really well done. Um, and hopefully that gave a little bit of a, an idea. Yeah, for sure. That That sounds great. Yeah. I'll, I'll be looking into that one regardless of whether or not it makes it onto your your long list for the yeah. prize. 
Exactly. That's what I was thinking. It's just so much fun to get exposed. You know, maybe I would have heard of, of this book and some of the other books, but even if I had heard about them in passing, I don't know that I would have had the opportunity, obviously, to read all of them. So it's really fun, this whole process of just discovering these these books and these authors that may have just passed me by otherwise. So I thought I would spread the word about that one, and I'll continue to do that as I do more reading for the prize. Nice. Yeah. How about well, you? What have you been reading? I am also reading a collection of short stories. And uh, I had an opportunity uh, a week or two ago, and I don't know when this will be up on YouTube, but to sit down uh, with Sean, the book maniac, to yeah. discuss Stephen Milhauser. Uh, he, uh, I think he heard that little conversation that we had a few weeks ago uh, when I said I was looking it up and I looked it up on his birthday and lo and behold, he had a new book out that very week. And so it is Disruptions and I am reading Disruptions. And it's so nice to be in um, a new Milhauser collection. Uh, a lot of these stories were published over the last several years, um, but in magazines I don't read. So I didn't actually mm. realize it. I didn't know it. You know, sometimes these collections come out like, you know, the one that Tessa Hadley um, published in July. I had read almost all of those stories already because they were published in the New Yorker. Mm, and mm -hmm. there are a few more that that happened with over the last few years. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Sometimes they're edited a little bit differently, but always kind of fun. But this one just completely took me by surprise. I assumed he was done. And yeah. I don't even know if he's done yet. I think he's the kind of person who may just keep on going until... There's nothing else, um, you know, he can't do it <laughs> physically right. or something like that. Um, but the one that I'll, I'll share just the beginning of, see if this sounds Milhauserian to okay. you. This is the second story in the book. It's called After the Beheading. I'll admit this is one I was looking forward to, knowing nothing at all about it. Like, what's, what's After the Beheading going to be about? Right. Well, here we go. After the Beheading which took place at 11.14 a.m. on Saturday, June 1st, in the middle of the town green, some of us remained seated in our folding chairs, trying to understand what we had just witnessed. Others came forward to look more closely at the guillotine, mounted on its platform, splattered with blood. Still others headed home to their families or set out on solitary walks or gathered at the Black Cat Tavern to talk or forget. Parents who had left their children at home tried to imagine what they might say about the morning's events, while those who had made the decision to bring their children with them wondered whether they'd done the right thing. Whatever our response to the public execution, which for many months had been the subject of heated debate, we all recognized that a turn had taken place in our town, one that we did not yet fully grasp. Wow. <laughs> and the, the part that just really kind of pulled on me is the folding chairs. You know, the, the little details that Milhauser puts in to make these more suburbia, almost, mm -hmm. you know, to make this set not in, you know, some medieval town or, or, you know, revolutionary France, but today in your town, you know, the town green. And, and he talks a lot about that people passing to go to the beach, you know, it really is almost like this mesh of, of say John Cheever with a beheading <laughs> in a way. Wow. And, it, and it's, it's an interesting, an interesting story. Um, but yeah, they're there. I'm not through the book yet. I'm uh, savoring it. 
uh, but yeah, this is this is a fantastic collection. A really fun um, hardback. You know, the last few have been hardbacks that I've just loved, and this one is a little bit different size than the others. Oh yeah, you know the dimensions of it, not just the thickness of the the, the book, but the dimensions of the outside. I guess that sits nicely, you know. Mm. I, I like it when they fit nicely on the shelf together, but sometimes I guess it looks cool if, if they don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's like but, the MYRB classics where, like, a couple of like JR is just like a quarter of an inch or half an inch bigger than all the rest, and uh-huh. it's like I know They're it was like, like done for a specific reason, but as I'm looking at my <laughs> shelves, it kind of gets me a little. I have to put them on sometimes on different shelves because. The NYRB classics fit on some of the shorter shelves that I have, mm. but not those, not anniversaries. Right. And maybe that was their point. They're like these big, thick, you know, ones that are kind of oversized, overstuffed, have to sit somewhere else in your house. Stand apart. <laughs> no, it could be right. Yeah. Well, that just, you showed me the cover of the Millhauser. That's a gorgeous cover. And like you said, the last couple of his in particular, I think he's always had some pretty cool covers, but the mm-hmm. last few in particular have been lovely. So yeah, that sounds like a great collection. I'm looking forward to reading that one. It's fun. I definitely recommend it. And, you know, uh, Yi Yun Lee just came out with a collection this week for us uh, called Wednesday's Child, which I'm also reading. But you know what's frustrating? I I can't find these books around me. I, they may be up at the King's English. I don't know. Mm. But all the bookstores a little bit closer to me, even all of the Barnes and Nobles, I'll even search and say, you know, I've got the... Um, e arc of Wednesday's Child, but I'd love to have it, mm-hmm. and it's not in anything like in the state, in the Barnes and Nobles, or in some of my local bookstores. And neither is Disruptions, and neither was After the Funeral. These are to me significant um, works of 2023, yeah. and by some of our greatest short story writers. It's not just George Saunders, everybody. <laughs> you know right. these these should be being highlighted. I get that there are market forces at play and I don't always understand all of those. And, you know, I I love it when I feel like someone might be going against those because the work of art is just important enough that you just do it. Mm -hmm. But man, it's, it's kind of frustrating that a new Yi Yun Lee and I can't find it anywhere. I have to order it online. That's really frustrating. I know you have that new smaller bookstore that's near you, the independent bookstore. Yeah. And I, I do wonder... love them, but they are smaller where they don't always get, you know, yeah. some of the, the main releases um, or not the main. They, they'll, I'll probably get the main releases, but some of these a little less main main releases. Right. Right. Just <laughs> off would, Broadway. Yeah. They would certainly order it for me. Um, that's what but... I was going to say. I wonder you know, it wouldn't work on a Barnes and Noble, obviously, but I wonder on some of those smaller mm-hmm. bookshops, if you started consistently ordering, if that would be enough for them to maybe, you know, change their book buying a little. I don't know. I'm just what guessing. you're saying is it's up to me. It's up to you to yeah. change this marketplace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, Paul. I hear you. Exactly. Mission no, accepted. I mean, <laughs> the only reason I mentioned that is, and it probably wouldn't work in all book all bookstores, but there was one bookstore that was mostly used books here in town, but they had this section of new fiction at the front of the store. And they had this one shelf in particular that was labeled like international fiction. And it had a lot of really good, you know, stuff from new directions and archipelago. And so I would always make sure every time I go in there to buy something from that shelf to kind of encourage them to keep it up. But in particular, there was also this book buyer who was 
asking me, we were just chatting about it and she was like, you know, are there any other publishers or authors that you would recommend? And I mentioned Charco Press at the time. And the next time I went in there, there was like five or six Charco cool. Press books on there. So again, I know that's not always going to be the case, but I do think it's at least worth sometimes having a conversation with somebody <laughs> and just seeing if maybe they would be willing, you know, put somebody on their radar and maybe then maybe it's not a lack of um, wanting them. It's just they don't necessarily know right. everything. So I don't know. Did, worth did a try, you, maybe. Did you feel the pressure to buy each of the five Charco <laughs> Press books? Like that's the reason these are here? <laughs> I Yeah, I did. I I owned several of them, but I did end up picking up several more just for that very reason. Oh, it's like, yeah, I know they went out on a limb for me. So I wanted to show them. And hopefully my, in, you know, in my mind, I was hoping that some other person would walk in and either be excited that they saw a Charco Press book because they recognized it, or maybe just somebody would say, what is that? I've never even heard of that and pick it up too. So <laughs> I was living, you know, my pretend life as a bookseller vicariously through them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> little risk in that uh-huh. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> well i am excited for today's episode uh not only because of the fall weather that's that's creeping up on us but because we are talking about uh, our favorite book passages this is mm-hmm. something that i think we've both been looking forward to for some time and just trying to figure out the right time to slot it in mm-hmm and I think what we both mean by that are not favorite scenes, mm-hmm. but favorite written passages, like paragraphs or or sections or you know a few a few sentences, whatever it, it might be, that we just love the way that it conveys the information. Um, and it could be because of how well it does a scene. Um, but it was interesting; almost every one of mine isn't so much about a scene as much as it is about a particular idea in the book that I think is, uh, you know, really put into um, perspective with this great written passage. Is that how you approached it too? It is. I would say a few of mine might be more like a page or two pages. There's a couple I will have to ask everybody's patience, but I just think they're gorgeous. Um, it's not always a sentence, but yeah, it's exactly what you said. It, for me, it's more those passages as you're reading through a book, they just stop you in your tracks. You're grabbing a pencil, you're grabbing a tab to mark it. And often they're, like you said, touching on bigger themes within the book, or there are certain things, you know, some of the topics like with our affinities, I think people will probably notice a few of these passages, like tick the boxes for some of my affinities where you know, for example, mm-hmm. people know by now, anytime a certain descriptions of nature writing come up, for me, that's just catnip. <laughs> um, I was trying to think, like, I was going to ask you, are there any particular types of things that you think that there's commonalities in the types of passages? Like, for example, is it character descriptions? Mm. Is it outlooks on life? I mean, for me, it's some of these, I'm naming some of the ones that for me do stop me in my tracks. If a character description is done really well, especially in like classics like Dickens, he was and, and Trollope, they're so good at, you know, describing that. Mm-hmm. Was it a couple of weeks ago that you mentioned, I think it was in a Trollope book when he was describing a, a woman who was sitting there and I can't remember, it was like she was melted or I can't remember all the descriptions, but <laughs> when it's done well, I think that can be really good. But also for me, it can also be, like I said, nature, but sometimes it's like a, almost like a philosophical, like mm-hmm. a, a human experience type of a thing. So you know, not to put you on the spot, but do, have well, you noticed any commonalities? That's a good question. Maybe, maybe 
let me think about it as yeah. I share them. Yeah, for sure. And see at the end and, you know, give, game our listeners just a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. what what is a common aspect of mine? I, I do think it's there. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be moments of, I think, realization yeah. or, or, you know, they are character descriptions, but not so much like their physical appearance, right. so much as their perspectives, you know, their, their, uh, you know, maybe it may be a little bit of a realization, uh, but also a perspective they might have on, on life uh, yeah, or on themselves. No, so, I agree. Yeah. That, that tends to be what I do too. There'll be a couple of other ones that I'll bring up as, as we read through that I think definitely tick a lot of the, the boxes for me that, you know, won't surprise many people probably, but. Well, maybe we better get to sharing since it sounds like you might have a few audiobooks to read. To exactly. Us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned War and Peace. I'll only read half of it this time. But. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Skipping some of the more famous scenes. I want to focus on the lesser known passages. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All the begat sections of the Bible, you know, that kind of thing. Well, we're, we're I'd kind of like to ask you, too, when you're sharing, tell me which ones came to mind like right off and which mm-hmm. ones dawned on you at a later time due to, you know, searching or just thinking about this topic. Uh, because most of the ones that I thought of right away, while I'd be happy to share them, I kind of already have it to one degree or another, yeah. you know, an example being Middlemarch. One of my favorite passages is where Dorothea is crying um, after her wedding, after her marriage for like six weeks. And Elliot says, this isn't uncommon and nobody seeing her would think that anything big was going on, mm-hmm. but talks about how if only we understood the secret or the silent noise, if our ears could be unstopped to this, you know, we would, we would be deaf and mm-hmm. it's not, she puts it a little bit better than I just did. <laughs> um, it's so well done. And that one mm-hmm. came to mind, but I'm pretty sure I shared it on our Epic reads um, uh, episode. Yeah. And so I, I'm not, I won't share that one, but things like that came to mind. A few things from Moby Dick. And I thought we, we've talked about that so much. So I, I think most of mine, not all, but most of mine, haven't ever brought up at all on the episode oh, wow. and I had to dig a little bit and each one I was like oh yes that's yeah that's one of my all-time favorites you know I love that part or I love that book they're they're ones I don't you know maybe our forgotten favorites episode you know keep going back to our old episodes right um, so many of these were were books that I didn't even think of for that episode but certainly would apply as great reading experiences that you know, due to the, to the passage of time and them not necessarily always being first in mind, uh, I've forgotten about a little bit, but Mm -hmm. now speaking of, speaking of forgetting, there's a couple of mine that I know I've mentioned the author and I'm hoping that I haven't actually (laughs) mentioned these passages, but I couldn't remember. And a couple of them, the first one in particular I love so much that I would pretty much read it every episode. And so I apologize <laughs> to readers if it is repeating myself. But yeah, no, I, I tried to do the same thing. And I think mine's a mix. I think uh-huh. there will be several where people will be like, oh, he's going on There's again about Paul. so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did try. And I do think that there are also several that did surprise me as I was 
looking through old notebooks and scanning my you know shelves to try to think of something different. Um, so hopefully it'll be a good blend of those. All right. Well, I am going to sit back and relax and be lulled by Paul's reading. I'm just, uh, you've got me um, anxious to see just how, how long your passages are. So uh, I'll start with luckily the first one, it's not too long and it is one. This is one of the ones where I feel like I might have, I know I've mentioned this passage before. I don't know if I've read it, but like I said, if so, I am going to ask people to forgive me because I just think it's maybe if I had to pick an all time favorite passage um, in literature, this would be up there and it's from uh, James Salter's light years. So you'll have to tell me if you remember this one, but um, it's about a father and he's reading to his children at night and it says, and he reads to them as he does every night, as if watering them, as if turning the earth at their feet. There are stories he has never heard of and others he's known as a child, these stepping stones that are there for everyone. What is the real meaning of those stories? He wonders of creatures that no longer exist, even in the imagination, princes, woodcutters, honest fishermen who live in hovels. He wants his children to have an old life and a new life, a life that is indivisible from all lives past, that grows from them, exceeds them, and another that is original, pure, free, that is beyond the prejudice which protects us, the habit which gives us shape. He wants them to know both degradation and sainthood, the one without humiliation, the other without ignorance. He is preparing them for this voyage. It is as if there is only a single hour, and in that hour all the provender must be gathered, all the advice offered. He longs for the one line to give them that they will always remember, that will embrace everything, that will point the way, but he cannot find the line, he cannot recognize it. It is more precious, he knows, than anything else they might own, but he does not have it. Instead, in his even, sensuous voice, he laves them in the petty myths of Europe, of snowy Russia, the East. So, like I said, I don't know if I've read that one before, but I just, that one gets mm-hmm. me every time. I remember the first time I read it, it just stunned me. And on so many levels, he is sentence for sentence, I think one of the most beautiful writers that we have. And I know that he's often called a writer's writer for that reason. But not only the beauty of the language, but just the, the idea behind that of, of people who are parents, or maybe there are other people who, you know, maybe, maybe aren't parents, but have nieces or nephews, or, or there's just that feeling of trying your best to set your children up for maybe not success, but just to have a rich, full life. And for many of us, that involves, you know, telling them stories and reading to them and trying to share this love, like we talked about in one of our other episodes. Um, But I just love the lines that he, you know, he's preparing them for a voyage. It's as if there's only a single hour. Um, He longs for the one line to give them that they will always remember that will embrace everything, but he cannot find the line. He cannot recognize it. And it's like that desperation of, of parenthood of, of, trying to do everything you can to set them up to have this wonderful, beautiful life that you hope for them. But there's also that understanding that there's only so much you can do at the end of the day. So like I said, that, that passage, every time I read it, I love it. And if I have to name favorite passages of all time, that one had to be on the list. So nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you did share that one in our um, reading to, you know, sharing your love Uh, of reading to the next generation, Mm -hmm. but absolutely uh, worth bringing up on here. It's just not just the sentiments, which are lovely in and of themselves, but yes, the way it's conveyed, the writing of that is mm. so, so nice. It just, it, it's that kind of inspiration that, that sense of 
of wonder that makes you want to go and and you know bright brightens brightens me up to think of those times you know i mm-hmm. i both of us read to our to our kids and have read to our kids and what a treasure to have it put so nicely yeah and in in that passage absolutely yeah well what about you what's your first one all right i'll do one too that might not surprise people okay. while i don't think I have shared this passage on this podcast. I have shared it on old podcast episodes. Mm. Um, Listeners may know that uh, there was a very brief run where I tried to reboot the Mooks and the Gripes podcast on my own. Yeah. We were talking about at the beginning, you know, it, it was fun. It was hard work and I didn't have the stamina to do it. But the first episode, uh, kind of to memorialize my own first uh, foray out into it, I, I chose to do Anita Bruckner's first novels. Uh, she calls her first one a start in life, you know, and I thought, well, that's kind of fun. And so I, I talked about uh, a start in life and Providence and Look at Me and Hotel du Lac in that episode. I did make that available to Patreon listeners. I think it's one of the first episodes, if you sign up for Patreon, you can scroll back in the feed and you'll find uh, kind of a bonus uh, edition of that particular episode. It's like, I don't know, 40 minutes or something like that, all about mm-hmm. Anita Bruckner. It's tons of fun to do. And so I and I, I know I read this passage on that uh, episode, but maybe it's... You know, another reason I almost left this one off is that we do bring up Anita Bruckner quite often, including in the very last episode. And even though I said, look at me, which is the book I'm going to talk about today, I meant a start in life in the last episode, folks. I realized as I was editing it that I said, you know, look at me in error. And I was talking about a start in life. Um, But this is Look at Me, her third novel published in 1983. And it's about a single woman who is getting older and she is a writer and she, she loves to, she, she's such a great writer, um, art, art, art history, things like that. She, she does a great job and that's kind of been her life, but we get the sense that she wants something different and that some of the reason that she's so good at that is, um, I won't say fear, but you know, maybe a reticence or a lack of, um, a lack of some of these qualities that make people go out and grab life, the life that they want by the horns and wrestle it into them. Um, And yet she meets some people who kind of make her start to feel this way and almost uh, start to, to leave, uh, you know, her writing behind. Mm -hmm. And here's uh, the start of chapter six. And I did not write for many evenings that followed. In my new security, I began to see it all in a different light. I began to hate that inner chemical excitement that made me run the words through in my head while getting ready to set them down on the page. I felt revulsion against the long isolation that writing imposes, the claustration, the sense of exclusion. I experienced a thrill of distaste for the alternative life that writing is supposed to represent. It was then that I saw the business of writing for what it truly was and is to me. It is your penance for not being lucky. It is an attempt to reach others and to make them love you. It is your instinctive protest when you find you have no voice at the world's tribunals and that no one will speak for you. 
I would give my entire output of words, past, present, and to come, in exchange for easier access to the world, for permission to state, I hurt, or I hate, or I want, or indeed, look at me. And I do not go back on this, for once a thing is known, it can never be unknown, it can only be forgotten, and writing is the enemy of forgetfulness, of thoughtlessness. For the writer, there is no oblivion, only endless memory. That's just a start of a chapter thrown in here in about the middle of the book. (laughs) Jeez. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you would think by the power and and just the beauty of that, it could have been in our opening passages because a lot of times people will come out guns a blazing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like you said, for that to be thrown right in the middle just shows, you know, what an amazing writer she is for one thing, but yeah, that's a wonderful passage. I love the idea of, you know, writing as an act of empowerment, but it also acknowledges the reasoning behind why somebody might be a writer where it's sometimes Mm -hmm. feelings of exclusion or they're afraid that things are going to fade away. Wow. That's really good. This is a way to express something that they can't otherwise express and, Mm -hmm. and yet yearn to be, to have that um, ability in their life, to do it in person, to do it face to face. Yeah. Such a great, a great book. Um, It's the one she wrote, like I say, it's her third novel. It's the one she wrote right before Hotel du Lac, which won the Booker and kind of put her on a different, you know, tier but it's it's possibly my my favorite of all the ones that I've read. It's a great one. If you haven't read it, folks, give it a shot. <laughs> I was going to say, I have a feeling, just like most of our episodes, that this is going to be one of those where I'm rushing afterwards to go pull a bunch of books off my shelf and add them to my you know, bedside table, teetering bedside table, as <laughs> Trevor can see behind me. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, my next one, I am afraid I'm hoping it won't give Trevor any PTSD after your recent experience with the books of Jacob. (laughs) Um, It's not that book, but it's from Olga Tokarczyk and it's her wonderful book Flights, which I absolutely love. And so I don't want to compare them directly, but I think this book has a lot in common with maybe like a Kate Zambrino where it's not necessarily a linear book in many ways. This one touches on you know, different characters and there's different themes that kind of carry through. There's the the human body, there's the idea of travel and the alienation that comes with travel. So, you know, again, this is one of those that for me is just ticks a lot of the boxes of things that I absolutely love. And so actually when I was going through, I, I had marked with little pieces of paper, all the different passages in the book. And that was one of the reasons that reminded me that this would be a good book to bring up during this discussion. And so I actually flipped through the book and was trying to pick one of these dozens of wonderful passages that represented the book. So this is the one I settled on, but there are so many others that I could have um, done. So here's the passage. Describing something is like using it. It destroys, the colors wear off, the corners lose their definition. And in the end, what's been described begins to fade, to disappear. This applies most of all to places. Enormous damage has been done by travel literature, a veritable scourge, an epidemic. Guidebooks have conclusively ruined the greater part of the planet, published in editions numbering in the millions, in many languages. They have debilitated places, pinning them down and naming them, blurring their contours. Even I, in my youthful naivete, once took a shot at the description of places. But when I would go back to those descriptions later, when I'd try to take a deep breath and allow their intense presence to choke me up all over again, when I'd try to listen in on their murmurings, 
I was always in for a shock. The truth is terrible. Describing is destroying. And I thought, wow, you know, that's so good. I mean, as a proud lover of, of nature writing and travel literature, there's a little bit of me that bristled and wanted to push back against that. But I also think there's a lot of truth there. You know, we, we've talked about this even with some of the books we love. As much as I love talking about something like art or nature, if you start analyzing it and digging in too deep, there there's always that risk of removing some of the magic that caused you to love it in the first place. You know, if it becomes too cold and clinical, so I thought that this did a nice job of touching on that. And also something I think we all experience with the internet, um, you know, there's so many of these places around the world that are these holy places or these, you know, um, you know, I don't know, just different places that are, are destinations, you know, even if it's Yosemite or something like that. But there's always that risk when you start looking through the, the descriptions on tripadvisor.com or something where it almost turns it into a commodity and kind of remove some of the excitement and, and the personal discovery aspect of it all. So anyway, that passage in particular, I thought did a nice job of that. And it also just represents what I love about that book is just this idea of, of her free ranging mind. And she has so many fascinating things that she talks about in that book where she'll just go off on these little tangents like that, that I absolutely love. So um, yeah, I thought that was a really good one that kind of represented what I love about that book, but also I just love that passage in particular. Have you read Flights? I always forget. No, no. Yeah. The only one I've read still is the books of Jacob. Okay. And I know that it's an, it's different, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm not, I'm not scared or put off. In fact, I, I, I think I've said, I, I did really like the books of Jacob just also was exhausting and frustrating at times and, mm-hmm. and took me a, a long time to read. <laughs> right. Uh, I found it, I found it put downable. <laughs> right. I get that. And uh, so, but I, I am excited still to read the other ones that I know people love. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I have them. So that'd nice. be, be nice to get to. Yeah. Well, what's All your right. next book? My next one, I'll go one in translation as well. Uh, this is from Imre Kertes. He's won the Nobel prize uh, for, for literature. And I first encountered him in the early, early days of my blog and just kept on finding uh, his books. Uh, most of them kind of in newer translations by Tim Wilkinson. Mm. They, they were coming out for a period of time. I really liked the editions, but this is from Kadish for an Unborn Child. It's uh, his 1990 book. Um, Tim Wilkinson translated, I think, a retranslation in 2004. And I thought... It, it's one of those, there aren't very many periods as you go through, you know, it's kind of this long lament or Kaddish, I guess, a prayer, uh, and just lots of, of run-ons and, and thoughts. And so it was hard to find like a passage mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that was, you know, and, and so this one ends with an ellipsis. I, d- I don't go to the end of this par- this uh, sentence, uh, and this is all one sentence, but it does start at the start of this sentence. And uh, the book itself is about a Holocaust survivor who is, uh, which which is a, a, a common theme for Kertes. And he's trying to kind of uh, deal with the fact that he's still around um, and also why his children will remain unborn mm. um, into the world. Uh, as well as just exploring 
you know, his own sorrows, his own identity, uh, things that, that he, well, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll let the, I'll let the passage kind of go. There is no denying that I have known and felt since long ago from the first stirrings of my thoughts that some mysterious shame is attached to my name and that I brought this shame with me from some place where I had never been. And I brought it on account of sin, which, even though I never committed it, is my sin and will pursue me throughout my life, a life which is undoubtedly not my own life, even though it is me who is living it, me who suffers from it, and me who will later die from it. Wow. Have you ever read any of Kertesz's books, Paul? I have not. I was just trying to remember. I know I own Fatelessness, uh-huh. but that's the only one that I own, and I have not yet read any of his stuff. But I, he's been on my radar. It's just one of those I haven't had a chance to get to yet. So I, I think Fatelessness is great, and it's a little bit more straightforward. Uh, but I kind of think Kadish for an Unborn Child and his book Liquidation mm. are, I don't know, they're they're so sad and... and um, and harsh, but as they deal with the psychology of, of this, this person, these characters, and in particular, I remember liquidation, for example, I almost chose some passages from it because he's talking about, he survived. Mm-hmm. And while, I mean, this is very dark, a little bit of a trigger warning um, for thoughts of taking one's own life, but he, he's talking to folks and he says, why, why would I do that? It would be redundant. Wow, and it's just a powerful way of expressing that persistent sorrow. And I, I like how in the Kaddish for an unborn child, he talks about you know that this isn't mine, and yet it is. You know, I don't know. It's yeah. such a powerful passage. There are many in that in that book, uh, but that one I just remember being like, "Whoa, wow!" Mm-hmm. wow. So. I'm so glad you brought him up because. Like we've said, there's there's those authors that I have a book or a couple of books on my shelf. And at one point, obviously, could have been you or it could have been someone else that put him on my radar. But it could have just kind of faded into the, the distance in my shelves. But that's going to, you know, that that was beautiful. So I think I'm going to have to, you know, move him to the top and make sure that I don't let him just fade away. <laughs> sounds amazing. Yeah, good stuff. Again, I read most of his, his work about 15 years ago. And I don't think about it as much as I did back then and would like to, you know. <laughs> right. Maybe we'll be hearing more about it over the next uh, few years because I'll, I'll remember it and bring it up more often on the podcast. Yeah. No, that's one of the things I enjoyed about, and I always enjoy about doing research for our podcast is it's it's a good way. I know we do talk about a lot of the same authors and books and kind of joke about that, but it also does motivate you. And, and it's just like a fun treasure hunt on your own shelves or just you know, even on the internet to find some of these authors and books that you haven't thought about or had never even heard of. So speaking of, I mean, my next one is definitely one that does not fall into the usual categories for me. And it's one I'd actually kind of forgotten that I had read, which is surprising given how much I like this passage. Um, But it is a book that represents another type of passage that I often will stop me right in my tracks. And it's a description of books. (laughs) Shocking for everyone out there. But Um, This one is from Amos Oz's memoir, A Tale of Love and Darkness. And I read this probably five or six years ago, and I did think that the book itself was very powerful. Um, And I'll just quickly, you know, from the publisher's description, it says, A Tale of Love and Darkness is the story of a boy who grows up in war-torn Jerusalem 
in a small apartment crowded with books in 12 languages and relatives speaking nearly as many. The story of a man who leaves the constraints of his family and community to join a kibbutz, change his name, marry, have children. The story of a writer who becomes an active participant in the political life of his nation. And so I, as I was reading that, I did remember all of that, but I will admit that my strongest memories of this book are probably from the beginning and those surrounding kind of the intellectual life of this family as he was growing up. So here's a description of their home. And this is what I remember really loving about this book. It says, in this entrance hall, apart from a brown wooden hat tree with curling branches that stood near the front door, a small wall mirror and a dark woven rug, there was not an inch of space that was not covered with rows of books. Shelves upon shelves rose from the floor to the high ceiling, full of books in languages whose alphabets I could not identify, books standing up and other books lying down on top of them, plump, resplendent foreign books stretching themselves comfortably, and other wretched books that peered at you from a cramped and crowded condition, lying like illegal immigrants crowded on bunks aboard ship, heavy, respectable books in gold-tooled leather bindings and thin books bound in flimsy paper, splendid portly gentlemen and ragged shabby beggars, and all around and among and behind them was a sweaty mass of booklets, leaflets, pamphlets, off-prints, periodicals, journals, and magazines, that noisy crowd that always congregate around any public square or marketplace. So I just, I love everything about that. I love descriptions of books, obviously, for just my love of books, but I also like the way that he's comparing them to to different, you know, parts of society, you know, the, the, the big resplendent foreign books stretching themselves comfortably, and then there's wretched books peering out from you, their cramped and crowded conditions. They're like just such a cool description. And as you look at your own bookshelves, you know, I, I kind of like that contrast as well. Like we all have probably some of those, you know, nicer leather bound or, or the beautiful editions that we collect and love. But then there's also those other ones that are printed on the flimsy paper and, and you know, don't necessarily look as attractive, but maybe they hold multitudes and some mm -hmm. of your favorite passages too. So yeah, like I said, I don't have super strong memories of reading that entire book, although I do remember that I did like it. But as I was looking through kind of my notebooks and, and some of the favorite passages that I jotted down over the years, I saw that one and it was so nice to have that memory of, of reading that book and that description in particular. Oh, I love it. I love that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I know. Me too. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you brought up one. All of mine are kind of from uh, fiction and about character moments. I've realized that as I, you know, as we've kind mm -hmm. of been talking, you asked that question. I'm glad you brought out some that are a little bit more just about description of a uh, mood, you know, the things that bring us that kind of joy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, all right. You ready for my next one? I'm ready. Let's hear it. All right. I think this is a book that you don't like. Uh oh. And so uh, my apologies, um, oh. maybe it will, you know, maybe it will never be one that you like. Maybe you'll um, go back to it someday, but I'm choosing Roberto Bolaño's By Night in Chile from, mm. you know, he published it in 2000. Uh, Chris Andrews translated it, published in 2003 in English, the year Bolaño died. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a, it's, it's about, I don't know, hundred pages. I didn't pull my copy down, uh, about a hundred pages or so. Again, similar to the last one that I talked about, uh, just one big block of text. However, there are, there are pair or sorry, there aren't any paragraphs, zero paragraphs, except for, I think the very last, the last line is its own separate paragraph. Uh, but there are sentences, uh, it doesn't quite run on the same way. 
but this is a a uh, a, a deathbed confession potentially, mm-hmm. or may, confession may be the wrong word. It may be more of a an attempt to continue to excuse oneself. You know, it kind of comes off as as a at the start, especially as a deathbed defense for the way someone has lived. Um, though also certainly in the in the spirit of a confession about uh, there, there there are moments where you realize this person is recognizing some of the compromises that he made in life. Um, it is a it is a priest, Father Uritia, and he is talking about his youth and his upbringing, uh, both outside of the church and then within the church, and. There's all kinds of stuff that happens in this book, um, even though it's it's relatively short, but it's very political as well. Um, Uritia uh, gets um, kind of uh, pulled in to teach uh, Pinochet and mm-hmm. his generals about Marxism um, after the coup that uh, took out uh, uh, Allende. And this is a moment where, again, there's reasons why he wants to excuse or justify what he has done and uh, mixing church and this politics and this far, you know, right wing authoritarianism um, while also trying to, to suggest that, Hey, I, I was doing, I had different ideals and things like that. There are moments where he gives a little bit of a confession about one thing. You, you see it as almost a, a false, um, you know, misdirection about mm-hmm. the real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really like uh, so much of the writing in this one. And this is from relatively early on where he, he again, there's so much of him trying to build up his ethos here as someone who knows what they're going to say, knows what's going on, teaching whoever's listening about it and says, One has to be responsible, as I have always said. One has a moral obligation to take responsibility for one's actions, and that includes one's words and silences. Yes, Mm -hmm. one's silences, because silences rise to heaven too, and God hears them, and only God understands and judges them. So one must be very careful with one's silences. I am responsible in every way. My silences are immaculate. (laughs) Wow. I just, I love it. I love, I love this book, not just for its politics and all that. I don't fully understand all of that. It's, it's, it's foreign to me. I've tried and I, you know, Bolaño's work is often uh, talking about this particular period of time and uh, Pinochet and all of that. And so I know some of it just because of that exposure uh, but at the same time, I know that I really miss a lot of it. So for mm-hmm. me, the fascination here is of somebody trying to excuse themselves mm-hmm. who ultimately just cannot justify the life that they have lived as the book goes on. And it's for reasons like what this passage brings up, you know, mm-hmm. the silences you choose, the things you choose to ignore or not say. And um, here he's suggesting that it's perfect. You know, my silences have been immaculate, but we realize no, no, these are all the bases of, uh, of lies and of Mm -hmm. untruths to yourself. 
as well as to those around you. And I just, I think this book is, is fascinating. I've read it several times. It's been a few years. So it's, it, this made me think, Oh, I could probably get this done in, t- you know, the next day or so again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's making me want to re- reread it too. And just, I want to go on the record and say, it wasn't that I didn't like that book. I think actually I looked it back. It was and I, that I hated it. I hated it. Yeah. No, no. I gave it four stars for whatever that's worth. So it was definitely not that. I think what it was is something we've talked about where if you read a certain book by an author first, and in my case, it was 2666, mm-hmm. and maybe that maybe that's the pinnacle or like their masterpiece. It's not that the other books aren't worthy. It's just in your own mind, how could they ever compare? And I know it's not always fair and it's not a good way to approach books, but I think maybe I had heard how much people liked By Night in Chile. And so in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I mean, I love 2666, so I'll probably be right there with them on this. Mm -hmm. And it's not that it didn't work. I think it was just one of those where expectations were different than the reality. And so I don't think I probably gave it a fair shot. And, And you reading that and describing it does make me want to revisit it. Um, so, you know, I, not that I need to like excuse myself, but I do think that that's a lot of, what yeah, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing yeah, it. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little just, desperate. You know, <laughs> For, <laughs> well, forgive me, Bologna, for I've sinned. Excuse me, Father Urti. I mean, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My silences are impeccable. You know, you should, no, it does. I mean, it's the same reason that I am very intrigued and I want to read the Savage Detectives very soon, but for the very same reasons, I I always just keep almost picking it up and then not quite reaching for it because 2666 for me just looms so large. And I know well, it does for you too. I mean, you introduced me sure. to it. I just, yeah. I don't know. It's hard for me to not compare, even though I know that's fa- not fair. Well, they're so different. They're mm-hmm. so different. I mean, here we have a 100 page novella. Mm-hmm. That's like a little polished gem. He finished it. He published it during his lifetime. Then we have the, unfinished masterpiece that is just gargantuan and unwieldy Mm -hmm. and all over the place with uh, 2666. And so, yeah, they're, they're very, you know, it probably would be healthy to, to go at this without even thinking about that book. Yeah. Uh, Not because that will make it pale in comparison, but because I I don't think they can be quite compared. No, that's true. And uh, anyway, <laughs> no, I think now that I know that, I think it will help me in the future too. just knowing that they're they're wonderful in their own right, but they're all very different, like you just said. And it actually I, a passage I almost put on this, but I know I've mentioned it before was from 2666. And it talks about that very thing. And I don't have it right in front of me, but it's that hmm. when he's talking to that pharmacist and the pharmacist is always drawn to the the short, perfect books, the, the Bartleby, the Scrivener mm-hmm. and some of those. And he's kind of lamenting and saying that he prefers, he doesn't say the big baggy monsters, which I know is, you know, a different quote, but he's talking about the beauty of the big messy books and kind of battling with them and and fighting with them and everything. And so it's funny. I almost did bring that one up as a passage (laughs) and it ended up coming up anyways, but it's that idea of approaching things differently that I think when I return to by night in Chile, I'll have to keep that in mind. I'm glad you mentioned it. It's a good one. Well, fun, fun. And The Savage Detectives. Maybe maybe we should make a make a plan, a, re, a read yeah. together or something like that. That's a good idea. Over, would... over a course of time, you know, not something where we read it by the next episode, but mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that offline. Okay. And see if anybody's interested in in a little bit of a of a join in for that. I love that. That's a great idea. Let's do it. 
All right. All right. Are you ready for my next one? I am. Okay. So I've talked about Esther Kinsky's books in the past. And again, she's another one that um, her, her books just cross so many things that I love. Nature, walking, introspection. And in particular, her novel River, which was translated by Ian Galbraith. It focuses on a woman who's living in a suburb of London, and she's kind of spending her time walking along the rivers near her home and often in kind of an urban setting. And while she's doing that, she's just reminiscing on her life with kind of this frame of other rivers in her life that she's walked next to. Um, So the cover copy calls it, quote, an ode to nature, edgelands, and the transience of all things human. So, you know, obviously it was written specifically for me. And again, I had to be selective in choosing a passage as this book is kind of marked up from the beginning to the end in my copy. But I especially like this one because it captures that idea that I've talked about in the past with like Robert McFarlane and other people of you can't always get out into nature in the true like capital N, you know, the top of a mountaintop or something like that. And it's the idea of finding nature in crowded or urban spaces. And so I'll start. This one's a little bit long, but not too bad. Um, She says, again and again, during those wind buffeted weeks, I picked up my battered suitcase with the intention of setting off on a journey. On each occasion, however, I turned back. Barely had I set foot outside the front door when the journey seemed too burdensome, and I reminded myself of my desire to settle down, which, owing to the draftiness of my home, had become less urgent. Not far from the city lay the sea, which I would have to cross. The coasts that stood in my way had little to offer. Few things were sadder than an eagerly anticipated coastline that turns out to be dismal, blurred outlines, the inconclusive discontinuance of the flatland, charmless villages where the only thing happening is washing, flapping in the wind, and silt-bound, sea-filled boats. After a while, I learned to roam without thoughts of travel or a suitcase in my hand. I made a home for myself by walking and casting my eyes with ever-increasing dedication upon the unremarkable things that lay unheeded by the wayside things lost and not found, things left behind, unclaimed, thrown aside, going to rack and ruin beyond retrieval or recognition. I was fond of faded typefaces on scraps of paper, tufts of hair and fragments of buttons, broken writing utensils, buckles and clasps and tinny pieces of jewelry, old gym shorts and foreign coins. I did not remove anything but examined my findings where they lay, sometimes making a quick sketch in a notebook or noting down striking features. And then it skips ahead and it says, treading ever tighter circles around the radiant amusements and nightlife of the inner city, I finally dared enter, letting the lights of its pleasure centers fall on my hands and dusty shoes, breathing in aromas that welled onto the street from its restaurants, a delirious mindlessness from which I felt utterly remote, held sway over everything. So I just, like I said, there's a lot of passages from that book that I could have read, but I really love that one because it's she's dealing with things. There's this internal struggle and loneliness and alienation that's going on. So I like that part of it, but I also like the fact that she's kind of doing this almost meditative walking. She's taking note of all these things that aren't traditionally beautiful. It's like buttons and hair and trash, but it's this idea of walking as meditation, walking as is searching. And then I like the part at the end where she enters the city centers. I can't quite say that. Um, And she can appreciate that there's life and warmth there, but she kind of feels this alienation from it because she's been out on her own. So again, several of her books that I've read, she has these themes that really resonate with me. Um, And and a lot of it is about the walking, but also just the thinking that 
and sometimes the healing or just different things that walking can mean to you as you, as you're going on these, you know, hikes across whatever is available to you, whether it's sometimes it is up in the mountains, but more often it's, you know, walking through the city and just doing what you need to do. So I always forget, have you read either of her books or any of her books? I, I haven't. And I definitely would like to, I, I feel mm-hmm. like similar, there are several of these authors that kind of pop up frequently I know that I feel like, oh man, I, this is, this sounds so perfect. I need to, to get on that, Mm -hmm. but I haven't yet. Yeah. Well, that's the way it goes. But I mean, her other (laughs) book, Grove, Grove, Mm -hmm. I mean, it does capture some of the similar themes. I don't know that I liked it quite as much as River, but it's again, a a woman walking and and that one's mostly takes place in Italy and she's in mourning because a loved one has died. And so it does have some of those similar themes but yeah i think you would really like them if you get a chance i think so mm-hmm. I, I will get there you know yeah that, that and i think that's part of the thing too that happens is some of these are like i will get there and so i put them on the back burner without mm-hmm. ever getting to them because i just right. know that i will you know it's like i don't know <laughs> yeah well i won't let you forget about her i'll keep you know every six months or so i'll bring perfect. her up again <laughs> perfect i do appreciate the the uh the care there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, my next one, um, again, I'll keep it on the theme of these are, these are translated. So I guess I, I owe a lot to the translators themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, a book. I think you read this one recently. I can't remember. You'll have to tell me. Okay. Um, Ivan Turgenev's first love. Mm-hmm. I did. Is that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, Excellent. So this is his 1860 novella. Again, these, this is fairly short. Um, I remember reading it in one like train ride to work uh, 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And it's translated by Isaiah Berlin in 1950. So this is an older translation, mm-hmm. but I loved it. You know, it's the Penguin Classics translation, or at least it was when I read it. I assume it still is. And this is the story of uh, older people uh, gathering. You know, it's, a, it's some gentleman. Uh, you know, I imagine they're in a pub or something. I can't remember exactly where they're at. And, you know, they're bored and looking for something to pass the time. And so they say, well, let's tell each other about our first loves. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, that should be fun. And there's, you know, typical stories. Oh, I remember so-and-so. And that was fun. And it lasted a, a week or two. And then someone else came along or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, they're kind of just uh, easy to easy to pass. Um, but this particular narrator, rather than um, rather than tell the story, he says, I'm going to go and write it and recount it that way. Which I thought was really interesting. But mm-hmm. this is what we're reading is his uh, his narration of, of this first love. And I won't go into the ins and outs of the love itself. You know, I'll keep that for readers who haven't read it to be unspoiled. Um but it's something else and it's painful. And it's, you know, one of these things that has stuck with this narrator for his whole life. And toward the end of the book, there's this passage that I just love. And it kind of reminds me of things we love about like a month in the country by JL Carr and Mm -hmm. other books that are looking back on a youth and lamenting. Um, It says, what has come of it all? of all that I had hoped for. And now, when the shades of evening are beginning to close in upon my life, what have I left that is fresher, dearer to me, than the memories of that brief storm that came and went so swiftly one morning 
in the spring. And I just wow. really love that sense of this. this is something that sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably there, there's a part in, um, it, it, you know, the before link leaders before trilogy, like before mm-hmm. uh, sunrise, before midnight or before sunset, before midnight. I love that trilogy. And I do too. There's the part in before uh, sunrise, this or sorry, uh, before sunset, the second one of that trilogy, the one that takes place in Paris, mm-hmm. where you know it's been nine years since these two met, and they haven't seen each other that whole time, but they have that that memory of the 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 one time they met, which is you know the first movie, and they're talking about how well do you remember that? How, you know, and he's like, I remember that night better than I remember whole years of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just this that will always kind of be there, and I I. I think it's an interesting, somewhat beautiful, somewhat sad, melancholy uh, expression and way to look at things. Um, and I, it, it, I just keep thinking I need to read so much more Turgenev. I have loved everything that I have read by him. I know, and I don't know why, but I haven't gotten to some of his major, major ones. No, I'm glad you mentioned that one. I, I do love it, and I, like you said, it's a lot of those themes of you know, there's the aging and, and the memories and, and looking pa- back on the past that are just so powerful. And yeah, I, I'm, I feel the same way about Turgenev. I'd like to read more of his. And that was one of the things when I was reading, um, I'll give a little spoiler alert, George Saunders, his uh, a swim, what is it? A swim in the pond in the rain or whatever that one is, where he <laughs> d- dives into a lot of the different Russian classics and he does it in kind of his teacher mode. But as I was reading that, it was just making me realize like there's always these pockets and it's not like they're undiscovered. I mean, the Russians are, you know, very well researched and read and everything, but even in your own reading, no matter how much you read, there's always those authors or those areas that you wish you could read more of. So it's always, it's fun, but it's also like, ah, I need to get to that too. (laughs) Terzhenyev is definitely one of those for me. Awesome. I need to read that Saunders book. So I remember I, I ordered it on like Audible mm-hmm. live in one of our episodes a while back when you brought it up and I yeah. still haven't, still haven't listened to it. Yeah, you Shame should. On it's, me. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> and I, I actually listen to the audio because I tend to do that. I love his, he's such yeah, a he's, great reader of his own really books, good. Yep. He's but so I've, good. I need to actually pick up the physical copy because that's one that I want to own as well. So yeah, for sure. All well, right, so we've got the Savage Detectives mm-hmm. read along. Let's throw in the Russians. And oh, just all read of them. All, uh, yeah, we'll we'll do yeah. that too. So I think so. Well, you <laughs> that heard, is what no, I that is what I'm doing. If you remember from last week, to an extent. <laughs> so I was gonna say, no fair, because you already have a head start. You're already like you're already done with War and Peace, and you're yeah. I through. finished that that night. No, no, I'm like <laughs> I'm like 50 pages into both of them. A little bit farther into the brothers because the chapters are longer, uh, and I'm doing basically a chapter a day. Mm. Paul, I look forward to that every day. Both of them. That's awesome. I it has been so fun. So just just to let you know, but yeah, that's a little bit of a side step there. No. But, uh, <laughs> that's when you know you're doing the right thing, where it's yeah. not turning into an obligation. It's something you look forward to. That's perfect. Yeah, I'm really glad. Well, all right. I didn't plan it, but that's a perfect segue because my last one is actually George Saunders. I know that I bring it a lot, but yeah, um, it comes from his wonderful book Lincoln and the Bardo. And I know this book is a little bit divisive. Some people, it didn't work for them. Other people like me think it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I do. I love everything about it. But especially, we talked about this on an episode, his willingness 
to branch out and try something completely different and new, you know, it's a big departure from a lot of the stuff that he's done in the past. Um, you know, and I know he's often considered a funny writer and there are huge passages of this book that are very funny. And I will admit he's probably one of the two or three authors that as I'm reading him will sometimes make me laugh out loud. That's just not something I do. But what fascinates me about him is on the flip side, he's one of the few authors that he can get me teared up pretty easily too. I remember when I read during our short story episode, I read his entire story sticks, which is like a page and a half long. And even reading it out loud during that episode, it choked me up a little bit. It's just, he can be so powerful. And so the passage I'm about to read from Lincoln and the Bardo could very well do the same thing because it's, it's very emotional and sad, but I think um, I know you and I have talked about this. It's the section where Lincoln, President Lincoln, is visiting the body of his young son, Willie, who has just recently died. And it's a little bit long, and I'm only going to read um, the italicized. Anybody who's read this book knows that it's a very interesting formatting. And, and the italicized parts are just the parts where you're inside of Lincoln's head. And so I'm just going to read that part. Um, so again, he's, he's sitting there in in the tomb with his son. And it said, says, I had not thought to come here again, yet here I am. One last look, his little face again, little hands. Here they are ever will be just so no smile ever again. The mouth, a tight line. He does not know look like he is sleeping. He was an open mouth sleeper and many expressions would play across his face as he dreamed. And he would sometimes mumble a few silly words. If there ever really was a Lazarus, Lazarus, there should be nothing preventing the conditions that pertained at that time to pertain here and now. And it says, still, he, he says he feels foolish thinking that. And he says, still, it is a vast world and anything might happen. Please, please, please. But no, that is superstition. Will not do. I was in error when I saw him as fixed and stable and thought I would have him forever. He was never fixed nor stable, but always just a passing temporary energy burst. I had reason to know this. Had he not looked this way at birth, that way at four, another way at seven, been made entirely anew at nine? He had never stayed the same, even instant to instant. He came out of nothingness, took form, was loved, was always bound to return to nothingness. Only I did not think it would be so soon, or that he would precede us. Two passing temporarinesses developed feelings for one another. Two puffs of smoke became mutually fond. I mistook him for a solidity, and now must pay. I am not stable, and Mary not stable, and the very buildings and monuments here not stable, and the greater city not stable, and the wide world not stable. All alter, are altering, in every instant. And so, I, oh, I mean, that it, there's some more to that passage that I thought about reading, but I think that that just captures whew, just we talked about the humanity, like some of these passages, it's like that shared humanity. And fortunately I have never had to deal with anything like that in particular, but all of us who've experienced the loss of a loved one, or even just, even if we haven't experienced that loss, but every parent or everybody who's in a relationship or has friends, you have those moments where you, you think about what you have and, and you, you fear what could happen and things like that. So as I was reading through that book, I mean, a lot of it is a little bit slapsticky and there's different things that happen that are funny or, or different. But when I got to those passages with Lincoln, when you get, you know, injected into his mind, I thought they were some of the most powerful things I've ever read about loss and, and mourning. Um, so I know that's a dark way to end, but I, I thought those passages I think are just absolutely gorgeous. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, not a, in a way, also not a dark way to end, right? You're talking about the connection, the humanity. Mm-hmm. That again, I'll bring up Yi Yun Lee. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of putting together some of my thoughts on her new collection, Wednesday's Child. And we talked a little bit about this when we were doing our episode on Scholastique Mukasanga. Mm-hmm. These are horrible topics sometimes. And Wednesday's Child in particular is dealing with a lot of people who have gone through loss. And it, the first one, Wednesday's Child, is a parent who's, uh, again, trigger warning, but her her... I think 14 or 15 year old daughter committed suicide mm-hmm. and she's going through that. And that happened to Yi Yun Lee as well. Oh, wow. And yet somehow I don't want to say there's, I don't know the words we talked mm-hmm. about this with cockroaches, you know, Mukasanga's book. There's something about going th- being willing to write these things down and, try to come up with the connections to both the feelings, but also to other people who may be going through it, that is somehow still beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, yeah. I don't know the words, but no, I don't I, either, but that, yeah, oh, there's something on the dark. Yes. But also powerfully and, 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 and beautiful in what you just read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't going to read any more, but after what you just said, if you don't mind, I'll skip ahead to the very end of that section because I think it does touch on that. And I'll just read a couple more paragraphs. He, it says he's getting ready to leave. And he said, I had thought this helpful. It is not. I need not look upon it again. When I need to look upon Willie, I will do so in my heart, as is proper. There where he is yet intact and whole. If I could confer with him, I know he would approve, would tell me it is right that I should go and come back no more. He was such a noble spirit. His heart loved goodness most. So good. Dear little chap, always knew the right thing to do, and would urge me to do it. I will do it now, though it is hard. All gifts are temporary. I unwillingly surrender this one, and thank you for it. God, or world, whoever it was, gave it to me. I humbly thank you, and pray that I did right by him, and may, as I go ahead, continue to do right by him. Love, love, I know what you are. So... I, I, I wasn't going to read that at first, but when you mentioned, I mean, there's, there's a hope to it. And there's also this resilience and this ability to, you know, human nature is very resilient despite everything that goes on. There is that strength and, and whatever it takes to get back up and keep trying that I think is also beautiful. So. And that realization of what love is. Mm-hmm. I love that part. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. All right. Well, mine's not, happier necessarily <laughs> and maybe not even doesn't even have some of the happiness re- redeeming qualities of it but mm-hmm. this is uh, charlotte bronte's viet mm. and this is a passage i think about quite often for its silences for what it doesn't say you know thinking back on the bolaños thing um, this is relatively early in the book say chapter four or five something like that and our our main character, our protagonist, our, she's the narrator, is a woman named Lucy Snow. And the book starts when she's like 14, 15. And I, I think she has just lost her parents, but has found a, a place to live with her godmother um, in Breton. And feeling quite well there. She, there are a couple of children there about, about her same age. Uh, there's uh, the one is a young man 
named Graham. And the other one is a, a young girl, a younger girl named Polly. And Polly's father comes, you know, things seem to be going well. Polly's father comes and ends up taking Polly um, with him. And we don't know why, but not too much longer after that, Lucy also leaves Breton. Doesn't tell us why. We also know that other things have gone wrong in the time since she left and before, you know, some of the main events of the story. And this is her passage on not telling us what has gone wrong. Maybe not willing to confront it herself still, but also being a little bit uh, feisty about it with, with her readers. Mm. And I just love it. She says, On quitting Breton, which I did a few weeks after Paulina's departure, little thinking then I was never again to visit it, never more to tread its calm old streets, I betook myself home, having been absent six months. It will be conjectured that I was, of course, glad to return to the bosom of my kindred. Well, the amiable conjecture does no harm, and may therefore be safely left uncontradicted. Far from saying nay, indeed, I will permit the reader to picture me for the next eight years as a bark slumbering through halcyon weather, in a harbor still as glass, the steersman stretched on the little deck, his face up to heaven, his eyes closed, buried, if you will, in a long prayer. A great many women and girls are supposed to pass their lives something in that fashion. Why not I with the rest? Picture me, then, idle, basking, plump, and happy, stretched on a cushioned deck, warmed with constant sunshine, rocked by breezes indolently soft. However, it cannot be concealed that, in that case, I must somehow have fallen overboard, or that there must have been a wreck at last. I too well remember a time, a long time, of cold, of danger, of contention. To this hour, when I have the nightmare, it repeats the rush and saltness of briny waves in my throat and their icy pressures on my lungs. I even know there was a storm, and that not of one hour, nor one day. For many days and nights, neither sun nor stars appeared. We cast with our own hands the tackling out of the ship. A heavy tempest lay on us. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. In fine, the ship was lost. The crew perished. As far as I recollect, I complain to no one about these troubles. Indeed, to whom could I complain? Mm. I just, I, I really like how there's this realization of something horrible that she has gone through. We don't know what it is, and we don't ever know what it is. Um, but this is where she's talking about, hey, go ahead and imagine it being happy. And then as it switches to that there was some kind of nightmare that mm. still causes me to shake and, and tremble. I just, I love that passage. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I, I know you were reading um, Elizabeth Hardwick's um, mm-hmm. Seduction and Betrayal, which is part of Kim's NYRB Women project. And there was a whole chapter that was about the Brontes and it made me miss their world. <laughs> so I'm glad you gave me a little injection and actually I recently started re-listening or not re rereading, but in the form of an audiobook, the tenant of Wildfell Hall, um, which is by um, Anne Bronte. And it, it was spurred by that chapter in Hardwick's book where it's just so nice to be swept back into their, mm-hmm. 
tempestuous, fiery, like <laughs> there's drama, but it's so well done and so beautiful. And I don't know, I just, it made me miss them. So I'm glad you brought that passage up. And I've been thinking I, I want to go back because it's been, you know, I don't know. We say this a lot, but probably 10, 15, 20 years since I've read, <laughs> we read some of those. a lot of things 10, 15, 20 years. <laughs> Apparently <already>. we did. <laughs> it's time to, to revisit them because like that passage just exemplified, they're, they're so masterful and so powerful. Um, I love, I love, they're all, they're all different. I don't mean to lump them all yeah. together because they're very different people, but just the, the language and, and the power of what they're capable of doing is so yeah. beautiful. And I've only read a few of them. I've read mm-hmm. Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. Um, yet I've never read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. I've never read The Professor, um, yeah. Agnes Gray. Th- those are, are those the only other ones? Those might be the only other ones, mm-hmm. but I've never read those three and really, really, really want to. And you're right. Reading Elizabeth Hardwick has really made me want to go back and read their work. And then yesterday and today's reading about Sylvia Plath, I'm reading Red Comet, oh. that biography. Hmm. And then her essay on that, I'm like, I, I need to reread Sylvia Plath as well. I know. So much out there. And again, someone who can write so well about about this or, you know, it just inspires you to want to go and rediscover, rekindle. Absolutely. Yeah. I know a lot of people were talking about the the chapter on this Fitzgerald's, you know, Zelda. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that one was wonderful too, but I think I, I read a little bit ahead on the um, Sylvia Plath. So I finished that section and I think so far it's hard to pick because they're all so beautiful. Each one of those, you know, not stories, but essays is so wonderful. But I think the Sylvia Plath one might be my favorite so far. And like you said, I, it made I me want to go back and revisit. It's amazingly powerful and just looks at her life. It's, it's unflinching in describing what happens but she does such a nice job of capturing you know what we love about her wow so have you have you seen red comet no or the 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 recentish biography a couple of years ago uh by uh heather claire or heather clark this i i bought it probably three years ago two years ago or so and just started it and it is so good but as you can see Look it's a monster. That. This is a big, <laughs> a big, a bu- big book, a big undertaking um, that I'm reading rather uh, with some other big books. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you are not messing around right now. I'm going to add that to my list right now. Cause that reading that essay, like I said, just made me want to go back and revisit her. And, and I, you know, that seems like that would be a good companion piece to maybe yeah. going back and looking through some of her stuff again. For sure. I definitely recommend it. Um, I'm not even that far into it, maybe three or four chapters, but already like a lot of reading time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're big chapters. Right. Uh, but very, very, uh, a very well-written biography, very insightful, um, very astute. And it's interesting because these essays by Elizabeth Hardwick were written 50 years ago mm-hmm. and they seem they're very powerful. I love Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, mm-hmm. But I mentioned on Twitter, you may have seen that I kind of felt like her take on Zelda Fitzgerald, while probably was typical for the time, is a little bit outdated for us today because mm-hmm. the book she's reviewing is one of the first books to ever try and say, we don't do this woman credit. And I felt like she was still a little bit of a pat on the head um, while still recognizing the the horrible things that she went through and her 
her her own thoughts and desires. It was a, it was a wonderful essay still. Right. And similarly, her, her essay on Plath is from shortly after Plath that, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to read these takes from so long ago and realize that, hey, that wasn't that long ago, but a lot has happened mm-hmm. since. And a lot of our approaches to these things are different. Even, even the Plath essay um, is very much about her, her yearning for death, her fascination by suicide that in, is in all of her works and seems to have been a part of her life forever. And I think one of the points of Heather Clark's biography is no, it wasn't. She was a craftsman. She was a master. Mm. Um, she was uh, very satisfied with her work and her, and her life in many areas. There, there is that, but there's so much more and it's different from what, you know, we often look at as like, here's just a, the, you know, a whirlwind out there um, going off to self-destruction Right. And this book is is really special in the way that it recalibrates through some new material, you know, new things that have been made available that, mm. you know, no one 50 years ago had access to. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely a, a wonderful biography. Oh, yeah. boy. Sounds like it. And I'll just quickly say that Hardwick does acknowledge that sometimes when somebody does die in a way like that, mm-hmm. just like Virginia Woolf, that tends to dominate the discussions maybe more than it should. And I think she does acknowledge that, but like you said, I definitely agree with you that the way you could tell it was a product of its time, but even like with Virginia Woolf or, or our our next essay in from Hardwick is on Wolf. Yeah. Very interested in, in what in it. I'm so excited to read it. (laughs) I know I am too. My wife, just not to go on a a tangent here, but she's actually reading a book called Proust was a neuroscientist Mm -hmm. and it's looking at, different artists and how they in some ways were ahead of science in some of the things they did and her describing it to me. I, I, maybe I'll read it soon and bring it up on the show again, but she's currently reading about Virginia Woolf and, mm. and she's one of the ones that's mentioned in there. So that just, that aside of, of how these women and people are continuing to like shape the world, you know, decades and, and, you know, sometimes centuries later is always going to be fascinating to me. So I will, <laughs> I will follow up on that book down the road. Cause my wife keeps like reading me passages and it sounds amazing. So I'm going to read that one soon. We, we clearly need to get um, back onto our Patreon and just have one of our banter episodes on things that we're reading. And because I'm like sitting here thinking I'm reading a lot of Virginia Woolf right now too. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk more about it, but Let's save that for for one of those Patreon specific episodes where we just kind of blather on about book projects and things we we're reading and and let the tangents flow, you know. (laughs) Exactly. We either uh, motivated a lot of people to become Patreon listeners after hearing this little last bit or some people are like, (laughs) why would I pay to listen to that? But yeah, no, that would be fun. And I will just say real quickly, anybody else, um, as you're listening to this, I love passages. I love those as entry points mm-hmm. to authors, either reminders of passages I love or entry points to new authors and books. So as always, I would encourage people to reach out and share favorite passages that you have either, you know, with us directly or on social media, but I would love to yeah. hear some more examples from people of what their favorite passages are too. And we'll try and do a better job of grabbing those so that we can share some of them, you know, pepper mm-hmm. them into upcoming episodes. But yeah, that's a great idea. 
All right. Well, thank you, Paul. Yeah, you go you. and have a great rest of your weekend. I'll see you in like three weeks to record our ne- next episode. I know. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss miss you, but well, as always, we we'll we communicate. We'll we'll keep yeah. in touch. And maybe sometime in the middle there, we can do our Patreon episode oh. where we just get to sit and and chat about other you know about books, unlike we do on here. <laughs> yeah, it'll be very different. Very different. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. No, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time, 